encourage you this morning, moms, that we believe that God has a plan, a purpose, a destiny, a design, and that in his power, in his might, you are accomplishing it. You may not have seen, but this past week, um, this is a quick transition. I know the guys will relate a little more than the moms, but it's a setup for something I want to show you. This past week, Kevin Durant, who is a basketball player in the National Basketball Association, was named the most valuable player of the league. He's led the league in scoring over the past, I think, four years, and this is his first MVP award this past year, um, for this past year. And uh, on Tuesday, he gave an acceptance speech. Now, Kevin Durant is 25 years old. Uh, he is a follower of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when he entered the league, he adopted the name The Servant um, because that's what he believes he is. He is a servant. Even though he's the leading scorer in the league, Uh, He is a servant. He started off his speech by saying, first off, I'd like to thank God for changing my life. It let me really realize what life is all about. Basketball is just a platform for me to inspire people, and I realize this. Uh, He had on stage his entire team uh, because he wanted to recognize each one of them. His speech goes on for about a half an hour, and he calls every one of his teammates by name, thanking them for their individual contribution in his life. Then, at the end of his speech, he says the following. And and last, my mom. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys. By the time you were 21 years old, everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Cause we, that's what we we thought we made it. And when you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And. You wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You the real MVP. you that we believe you are 
you're the real MVPs in our life. You're the most valuable players in our family most of the time, and we appreciate it. To all the women here, um, in whatever status as a mom or future mom or just a mother in some form to, to others, we want to say thank you and we want to pray for you. So please, let me pray for you. If your mom's here, you can just uh, reach out and put your hand on her, gather around her if you'd like. Uh, I know there's a lot of moms who aren't, but uh, if your, your mom is here, just um, hold hands with your mom and just pray for her this morning. Father, we thank you for the mothers of our church. We thank you for all the women of our church in whatever category. We thank you, Lord, for how your presence, your glory is filling each and every one. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the joy of the Lord that is their strength. Lord, we thank you that uh, in this day and age when every part of family is under such attack that We have mothers that stand up for the truth of God's word to uh, give life and pour life into their families. I pray for an increasing joy. I pray for an increasing strength. I pray that the accusations of the enemy that come against mothers on such frequent occasions to tell them they have failed or they are inadequate would just be silenced in the name of Jesus. And I pray instead, uh, Lord, you would bless mothers. Lord, we thank you for our moms, and we, we give you glory, Lord, that it is within your order and your design, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Children, sixth grade and below, you are dismissed to go to your time of study. Everybody else, turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 18. Colossians 3, verse 18. Let me, just, um, let me just set this up for you. We have been looking at um, the cross of Christ. On the cross, Christ says, it is finished. Uh, the word he uses there is an Aramaic term, tetelestai, which means everything that I was given to accomplish has been accomplished. Everything Christ came to do on this earth was done through the cross. He took on our sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is a declarative statement about who you are in Jesus. I'm just reviewing the last four or five weeks, um, but please hang in here with me because this is really important. You are no more righteous uh, because you're sitting in church than you are when you're at work. You're no more righteous when you are helping someone out than when you're, now listen to this, than when you're sinning. Why? Because... Your righteousness is actually not dependent upon you in any way. Now, Paul, in Romans, by the way, he gets to the point where he says, does, does grace abound so that sin should abound, or does sin abound because grace abounds more, or should we, basically what he's saying is, because grace is so good, does that mean I should keep on sinning because if I'm already righteous and I can go on sinning, then should I sin more because, and he said, heaven forbid. Heck no, is what he's saying. Don't. The idea, though, is that because of what Jesus has done for you, you are completely and totally 
right in his sight, in his stand, because of what Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be declared right. Now, the turning point is this. Because we are right, we want to act right. It should change our hearts and our activities. It shouldn't change. To I mean, we shouldn't stay the same. Here's the truth, though. The gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God should, in fact, permeate every part of our lives. Every part of our lives. In other words, the gospel, the good news, is not just about the truth that you, when you die, you get to go to heaven rather than hell, which is, by the way, really good news. I think that's worth celebrating that I'm going to heaven rather than going to hell. But the gospel affects every area of my life now. There is no area, if you're a young person, if you're a college-age student, if you're a, um, an adult, single, married, with children, without children, no matter what status you are in life, the gospel affects every single area of your life because it brings life to you. You were at one point dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you're alive in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we should have life, for instance, in our families. And that's what I want to talk about on this Mother's Day, uh, is how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, affects us within our marriages, our parenting, uh, our being a child. Uh, See, this is one of those sermons that's great because there ain't nobody that it doesn't touch. In other words, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a sister, you're a brother. Everybody here today is one of those things. If not, you're not a real person. You're a man, <laughs> some sort of robot made up thing. Before there was a government, before there was organized work, before there was a university education system, before there was a church, there was a family. The first institution, the first thing that God made on this earth was the family. Man sinned, man fell, and where do you think the enemy entered to really try and be destructive first? The family. And let me just say this. I, I know that this is not, you, you're not without some sort of clued in aspect. The culture that we live in is shifting so fast when it comes to a definition of the family. If you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and is designed by God to be for life, then you stand in the minority of people who are alive in the United States for the first time in all history. You're in the minority. All the stats, especially over the last 10 years, the culture has shifted so fast about what our country believes about marriage and family that we in the church are not only in the minority, we're going to be increasingly in the minority if we stand upon God's word. Now, this doesn't mean we have the right to be hateful or mean or ugly about what our view is, because I think the gospel is life. 
I believe the gospel is truth and the gospel is love. But the gospel is true. Either we stand on God's word or we don't. And if we don't, then what are we, what are we doing here? Mother Teresa once said, What can you do to promote peace? Go home and love your family. George W. Bush wasn't the most popular president in history, although he's becoming more and more popular as the days go by. But he did say this about uh, family life. He said, The union of a man and woman is the most enduring human institution, honored and encouraged in all cultures and by every religious faith. Ages of experience have taught humanity that the commitment of a husband and wife to love and to serve one another promotes the welfare of children and the stability of society. Now, what does the opposite say? It says our society is going to become increasingly unstable. Paul, 2,000 years ago, in Colossians, as he's talking to the Colossian church about truth and how the gospel impacts family, said this. Colossians 3, verses 18 and following says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Here's what I want to look at this morning. Some of the characteristics of what real life family should look like, according to Paul. What does real life family look at? How how does the gospel impact our family? You with me? This is going to be really good. Hang on. It's going to go fast. First point is this. It should have a life of order. The gospel is a gospel of order. God is a God who speaks into chaos and does what? Brings life. He brings clarity. He brings order out of chaos. Where This seems to be a, a biblical truth. Where chaos reigns, God's order is not instituted. Where chaos reigns, God's order is not instituted. Where God's order is, there's life. And God speaks about life within the context of family. Now, listen, again... I know that much of what I'm saying, even though it's biblical, is anti-cultural, anti-society, but just hang with me and hopefully I can bring a little clarity to it and it'll be life-giving and, you, and not, won't put us all on the defensive. Because Paul says in Galatians, he wants to make sure that order and equality are, we, we, we too, too many times see them as synonymous, but they're not. They're different. Order and equality are two different terminologies. In Christ, we are all equal. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In um, the same book, Colossians 3, verse 11, earlier he had said, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but but Christ is all and is in all. In this passage, Paul was not upholding the cultural norms of his day. In the cultural norms of the Colossian area in the Roman world, 
women were less than men, children were less than women, slaves were less than anybody else. So when Paul talks about in Christ there's no Greek or Jew, first he's offending the Jews, then he's offending the Greeks, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave or free, and where he says that there's no male nor female, he is He is speaking above the cultural norm of his day to say, in Christ, we are all equal. But at the same time, he's talking about order. There is a hierarchy in the Holy Trinity. Orthodoxy teaches that the Son is simultaneously equal to the Father and submissive to the Father. Equal to the Father, submissive to the Father. Likewise, equality and submissiveness can coexist in human relationships, including marriage. This, I know, is a truth that we have trouble getting our minds around. One of the reasons we have trouble getting our minds around is because we have a bad definition of submission. We think submission is, obe- is uh, e- equal to obedience, and it's not. We'll talk about more in a minute what the, the whole concept has to do with. But one of the books I read, uh, a book called Gift of Honor, says that submission is to hold others in high esteem. To hold others in high esteem. He goes on and says in this book, The lower the value we attach to a person, the easier we can justify dishonoring them by negative words or treating them with disrespect. There is a life of order. We've seen in this past week, it's really been over the last month, but has come to light really in this last week, the whole area of human trafficking that is just exploding on our planet. Uh, It's always been around. Uh, It's probably increasing, but it's definitely becoming more public. Why is that? Because when you see another person as less than you, then you can justify trafficking them. You can justify not honoring them. You take away the fact that a man and a woman are equal, if you see women as less than men, then you can, in your mind, the next step of human trafficking is not that far away. We need to show honor where honor is due. And honor is that in Christ we are all equal, male and female. Matthew, Jesus said, these people show honor to me with their words, but their hearts are far from me. It's easy to say this. It's hard to to have it ingrained in our hearts. How will it be ingrained in our hearts, by the way? By a change of heart through the gospel. It's where the gospel permeates not just what we say, but our hearts, and as we're going to see in the next point, it leads us to a life of action. A life of action. In a home, the focus should not be, listen to this statement, this is really good. I thought it was good, even though I wrote it. In a home, the focus should not be on what I can get, but what I can give. For those who've gone through premarital counseling uh, with me, you know this phrase, live to outgive your spouse. 
live to outgive your spouse. It is a life of action. When the home starts to disintegrate is when everybody is out for themselves. I can tell you straight out, too many times in the home when a person says this is about me and my rights and what I can get versus what I can give the home, it is, it is not going to be functioning properly. What are the things that this life of action that Paul gives just in these couple of verses right here? He says this, a wife, a wife is to support her husband. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Again, I know there's no more uh, probably controversial word in our language today than the whole idea of women submitting to men because it sounds like an obedience and it sounds like a, 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 a suppression but really, if you flip the word and say it's really about wives supporting their husbands, it's a voluntary position. It's not something forced upon people. In Genesis 2.18, which I think is the whole truth of the concept of what it looks like for biblical submission, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word helper here means that this is one who assists another to reach complete fulfillment. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make him someone who's going to assist him in order that he can reach complete fulfillment. So what is the wife's role? What is her life of action? It's to assist her husband in order that he can reach complete fulfillment. Now, I know this is a complex and at times controversial and, and uh, it's a teaching that's hard to weave through. I'd encourage you to go get the uh, sermon I preached out of Corinthians last summer if you want to uh, get a little more clarity on this whole submission and headship and, and aspect that the Bible talks about. But the wife, if you see it as this, the wife is to give support to her husband. What's the husband to give? The husband is to give love to his wife. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A successful marriage is based on love. Here, guys, look at me. This is really important. Love is not merely an emotion. Love is not. The way Paul is wording it here. Love your wives. It is an active word. Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Okay, what does that mean? He gave himself up for her. I mean, it's not like this. It's like this. Honey, I love you. I got you right here. I feel it. It's to get up out of the stinking easy chair and do something. It's to love your wives. It is an active word. It's to give your life for her. Now, think about these two truths. What would happen if the husband felt supported by his wife and the uh, wife felt loved by her husband and not just felt it but saw it demonstrated on a regular basis? How dramatically 
would our homes be changed? How is this going to occur? It it is only going to occur when we realize that it's the power of God that indwells us, that enables us to live this kind of life. It is an active, demonstrative way to live in the home. We are too many times told that marriage is just about an emotion. I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. Marriage is translated, the love of God, the power of God is translated into the way we live our lives. Children, here we go children, buckle up. Children are to give obedience to their parents. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. It says in Ephesians 6, children, excuse me, I got a little quick on the clicker. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. If we want to really follow God's order for the home, wives are supporting their husbands, husbands are loving their wives, children are honoring their parents by obeying. It is life of action within the context of the home. By the way, obedience is given by God to help you in this life. Children, you may be thinking, I actually heard someone say this one time. I was was a youth pastor in college. This guy was in an oppressive home, and he was like, I can't wait to graduate from high school and get out of this home. And I'm like, okay, great. What are you going to do? My parents command, tell me what to do all the time. I'm going to go join the Marines. <laughs> yeah, that's going to work great for you, buddy. You go sign up for that. I can't wait to get out of that oppressive home. <laughs> you need to learn to respond properly to authority while you're young because you will always be under authority somewhere. God's command that this long life thing is not just about how you relate to him, though it is. Are you going to understand that you're under God's authority, follow after him in life, but about every other tier in life as well? How are you going to respond to authority? What if the authority is bad? What if the authority is evil? What if the authority is not? How are you going to respond? I know it's complex, but God has given you the home as an area of learning and practice. Mark Twain said this, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. By the way, children, delayed obedience is My kids, they've heard that way too many times. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Charles Wadsworth, a musician, said this, by the time a man realized that maybe his father was right, he usually has a son who thinks he's wrong. (laughs) I understand the challenges here, but we're looking big picture right now, right? Parents, you're to give 
understanding to your children. Verse 21. This is all just in these three verses in Colossians. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Could be mothers as well. Discipline in your home should be reasonable, measured, and in context of what occurred. As frustrating as a spilled glass of orange juice might be, it is not a reason to restrict your child for the rest of their lives. Accidents are not disobedience. In Paul's day, the father was more like a dictator than a dad. Probably the opposite is true today, at least in North America. The main problem I see is that children are being ignored, neglected, Parents are many times too busy for their own children. Fathers, don't embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. Instead, give understanding to your children. Be in their lives, but give understanding. As a young girl, she brought home straight A's on her report card one day. Her father looked at her report card, and here's what he said. This must be an easy school. Think of the frustration that's got to bring. For a child to bring home straight A's and the father to look at it and say, well, this must be a really easy school. It's no wonder, and again, I'm not speaking politically here, but it's no wonder that Hillary Rodham Clinton, whose father said that to her, made this comment not too long ago. She said, children without fathers are whose parents float in and out of their lives after divorce are precarious little boats in the most turbulent seas. Each role in the home calls for a certain amount of submission. That's why Paul can say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Bring honor to one another. Wives, support your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, honor your parents. Obey them. Parents, give understanding to your children. The anthem of today is really more express yourself, don't repress yourself. Whatever you want, that must be okay. Because what is God's goal for your life? He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. Instead, I believe, as I've said many times, that God calls you to be Christ-like. Here's the opposite of submission, by the way. The opposite of submission is a lack of consideration for the other, indifference to the other's needs, haughtiness, using the other to get my own way, living only in the present and promising no future commitment. These are contrasting pictures of what submission looks like. Where, where on here does it, is it talking about just obeying? It's not the idea. The idea here is one of honoring. Submission is more about commitment, committing your entire life and all its possibilities to another person, desiring the best for the other, wanting the other person's good. By the way, this can, this can, if you really want the other person's good, then you don't make up in your own mind what their motives are. Attributing to the other person, male or female, bad motives, judging them by their motives is only going to get you in trouble. How does that work? It works something like this. I know what you're thinking. 
I know why you did that. Well, you're attributing a motive to the person that you really don't know. You may have a good idea of what you're thinking, or you could ask them what they're thinking. But doing the best for the other is really laying down your life for them. It's trying not to control them. I'm not just speaking here of women in relationship to men. I'm talking about men and women in both ways. Trying not to control the other person. Being concerned more about their ultimate well-being. It has to do with accepting them. Accepting the demands of the relationship. Kathy and I have gotten to this point when we want to justify whatever our behavior is. it's kind of like this. It's a joke in our house, kind of backhanded, but uh, it's, it's this. You, kn- you knew what I was like before you married me. <laughs> you know what I was like before you married me. I haven't really changed all that much. I've gotten better looking, but I haven't changed all that much. Too often, we are in the business of trying to change the person we're married to rather than accepting who God has made them to be. Are they imperfect? Yes. Are they going to stay imperfect? Yes. Does that mean you should never mention any kind of failure or falling? No, that's not what I'm saying. But there's a difference between one and unaccepting. Listening is another. Actually listening to one another. Guys, this could be really powerful for us, if we ever learned what it meant to truly listen. It seems as if, I may be out of line here, but it seems as if the only true commitment we have in this life is to ourselves, at least in the society in which we live. My commitment is really to me. It's not to you. It's not to my children. It's not to my job. It's not even to the Lord. It's really all about me. And all this is for me. Jesus in the Good Samaritan parable, he talks about the guy who's going down the road and he's attacked by robbers. And basically the robbers are saying, hey, what's yours is mine. I'm going to forcibly take what is yours. And then some religious leaders come by, and they don't want to touch the Samaritan, I mean the, the injured guy, because they're worried that in touching him, they may lose what they have. So the robbers are saying, what's yours is mine. The, the religious leaders are saying, what's mine is mine, and I don't want to lose it. And then the Samaritan guy comes along, and he takes the injured man in, and takes him to an inn, and cares for him, and pays for his bill, And really what Jesus is saying, that the true neighbor is the one who says, what's mine is yours. We live in an age where the first two characteristics prevail. What's yours is mine, or what's mine is mine. But too seldom does the world see an example of someone saying, hey, what's what's mine is, is yours. That's the life of action that God calls us to demonstrate. That's where the gospel should prevail in our families. Final two points are these. It's a life of shared experiences. A life of shared experiences. To really what Paul is talking about here in Colossians is sharing our lives together. Does it not appear that the American family or the families in our society are so fragmented that 
there is very little life shared experience. Too often we're just too busy all doing our own things that that we don't share life together. Hebrews 2.14 in the New Living Translation says this, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. What, What is this saying? It's saying this, Jesus wanted to experience life like us and with us to become us. So he left heaven, all the privileges of heaven, and became a man. He became flesh and blood. We should want to share life together in our families. How many times... How many times when you talk about favorite family memories, or maybe I should just say really family memories that stick out in your mind of family vacations come to mind? Too often when you talk, I mean, not too often, but most of the time, when we talk about something, hey, share an experience, something that was really memorable in our family. Many times what we all revert to is family vacation. Family vacation is this interesting combination of joy and misery combined. Is it not? I mean, really, if you think about family vacations, when you've gone on family vacation, it has its highs, these great times of fun together, and these unbelievable times of turmoil where you're ready to kill everybody in the van. I mean, really, everybody in the van. If you had a nuclear bomb that could go off in the van... At certain points on family vacation, you would be happy to detonate the thing. But you know what? That's what life and shared experiences are about. They're about joy and comfort. They're about fun and working through tensions together. Laughter and pain. That's what life in this world is about. But those life of shared experiences, that's where the gospel, the good news prevails because it it can overcome in our families. How do you make these shared experiences happen? I, I haven't ever figured out a way other than just quantity time. It just takes time. You can't you can't necessarily plan it in a 15-minute window. Sun come along. We're going to walk to the mailbox. We're going to have some great shared experience together. I got, I got you from here to the mailbox, buddy. That's all I got time for. Now, you know, just keep doing it over and over, maybe over time, but it takes time because you never know when it's, going to, when it's going to happen. Fourth, finally, ultimately, which ties all of this together, it's about the life of Jesus prevailing in our homes. In a home, the most important person should be Jesus. There are a bunch of passages. Verse 18 here in Colossians, it says, This is fitting to the Lord. Uh, In Ephesians 5, it says, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 20, For this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the home as being filled with the life of Jesus. Romans 1.12 says this, I mean that I want us to help each other with the faith we have. Your faith will help me and my faith will help you. 
This to me is really what home is all about, is that we are building each other's faith up, encouraging one another, fellowshipping with one another, managing opportunities to pray together and seek after the Lord's will and to discover what God has for us. In Deuteronomy, Moses, uh, through the, uh, the, the Lord, says this, These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. When are you be, be talking about the Lord's work with your kids? All the time. In some way, you're talking about the Lord's plans all the time. Why is that? Because no matter what you're talking about, you're talking about how the gospel permeates every part of your life. Let's say you're talking about college. You're saying to your child, hey, let's, let's talk about where you're going to go to school. Well, what are you going to look at when you go to school? You can, look at, you can do the pros and cons and do all this other stuff. And it, it, I, I believe that's important. But ultimately, you've got to say this. What, is God's, what do you believe God's destiny for your life is? Is this going to move you toward that destiny or away from it? In other words, with every decision, every word, you're talking about how does the kingdom of God, the gospel, impact our lives? You may not be saying, okay, let me tell you about the Lord's commands. Thou shalt not steal. Let's talk today about thou shalt not steal. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about, but you can be talking about honesty and integrity in living a life. For instance, you may be, I don't know if you've ever done this, Um, Jared and I just sat down the other day, we did his taxes. I mean, you can talk about honesty and integrity, it was a little while ago, uh, we were doing his taxes for the first time. Praise God for Quicken, I can do anybody's taxes with Quicken, or TurboTax, whatever it's called. In any case, you can talk about honesty and integrity, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live our lives with any area of life because the life of Jesus should permeate every part of who we are. Jesus told his disciples this, love each other as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. On this Mother's Day, When we celebrate moms, I really want to celebrate family and say to you, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ should permeate every part of your family life. What if you're here today and your family life has already, it's already hit the rocks at some point? Start where you are. Be where you are. Seek after God's will for your family. I know that there are a lot of marriages that are struggling, even within the context of this place. I know that we've had divorce touch our family. It's not failure. It's a failure, but it's not fatal. Start where we are. Live the life of God in your home from this day forward. Let the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel permeate all that you are, and your future, your relationships, your families. Let your life be a life of order. Let it be a life of action in the Lord. 
Let it be a life of shared experiences with your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad. Ultimately, let the life of Christ rule and reign in your home. I want to pray for all of our families, just that God's presence and power would be greatly, greatly expressed in our homes today. Lord, we thank you that you rule and you reign, that you are a good God, and that you have a plan for our lives. Lord, I pray that your plan will be enacted in our homes. We pray that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the grace of God would prevail in our homes. We pray, God, that you would just direct the way we are to live. I I pray that wives will support their husbands. I pray that husbands would love their wives sacrificially. I pray that children would honor their parents. I pray that parents would not frustrate their children, but would raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I pray that Christ would indeed be the center of our lives, the center of our homes, the center of our existence. Lord, I pray where we have lived self-centered existences that God, you'd forgive us and that we would lift up our eyes and see how you're calling us, and that the righteousness of God, which we are now, will be enacted in our lives in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you, we rejoice in you today. I stand against the enemy who would bring accusations against those who have been struggling or whose families have faltered or parents who are feeling condemned or whatever the case may be, we do not receive a spirit of condemnation, but of conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to life. Lord, we thank you and bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Stand up with me. If you were, I'm going to speak this prayer of blessing over you. You'll be dismissed. Uh, If you need prayer, if you'd like someone...